Today, we speak with homeopath and educator Pat Deacon in Canada. She has agreed to speak on a topic that's very close to my heart, which is about some of the different prescribing styles we find in homeopathy. Something I always want to make clear to our listeners is that you're going to have a different experience with each homeopath you go to, and it's important to go to a practitioner you really feel comfortable with and you have really good rapport with, and then stick with them until your complaint has resolved. And depending on the complaint, this may mean weeks or months or years. But as you continue to build that relationship with your practitioner, you will eventually get to a very deep level of healing on a mental, emotional, physical, and even spiritual level. We have so many different prescribing styles which we can draw on, and Pat will go over some of them today. And we have over 8,000 different remedies which we can use to help our clients. So homeopathy really has no limits. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Homeopathy Hangout Podcast, where we discuss all things homeopathy from around the world. And now, your host, Eugenie Kruger. Homies, and a very warm welcome to Homeopathy Hangout. Today, we are hanging out with a lovely Pat Deacon, all the way from Canada. Welcome, Pat. Thank you for inviting me, Eugenie. Um, Hello, everybody out there. (laughs) It's lovely to have you on today. Now, we're going to be chatting about uh, different prescribing styles today. But before we do, I was wondering, Pat, can you tell our listeners a little bit about how you discovered homeopathy? Absolutely. Um, I, like many homeopaths I know, found homeopathy through my children. My eldest child, pretty much after birth, was absolutely covered with with eczema. We actually rehoused our cats. We um, removed everything from the house that we thought, you know, might be a problem. We did the conventional route all the way and and actually got no joy. Um, the, The cortisone creams didn't even work for him. So, um, we explored every alternative we could find, which at that point was not very many um, because it was, you know, pre-internet. This is, we're talking about um, the, the late 70s, early 80s, where they're just, the world was a very different place. Mm. <laughs> Eventually, though, we ended up being referred to a homeopath by three different, three different alternative practitioners we've been to. It said the only person who's going to help you is this homeopath, Lewis Klein, who was at that time one of pretty much the only homeopaths operating in Canada. Um, we were fortunately living in Vancouver, which was where he was. And you saw, we had no idea what homeopathy was. We walked into the room. He, my son, my husband and I, my son was three. He walked straight across the room. And this is my son who did not like strangers at the time, straight across the room and planted himself on Lou's lap. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, and at that time, Lou himself didn't have kids and he wasn't, you know, it wasn't like he was a you know, like a, emanating Santa Claus or something, you know, I mean, and he sat there for an hour and a half and I've just found the the consultation mind blowing. I just felt like I, he asked all kinds of questions I'd never thought about before. What side of the bed does he sleep on? You know, I, you know, th- things about him that I'd never really even thought about before, you know? And um, I felt like at the end of the consultation, we knew our son in a whole different way. And I thought that was amazing. And Lou said, uh, the eczema is going to be there for another few months, but it's not going to be bothering him. You know, we went off with these little sugar pills and came back six weeks later with a child we'd never met before. You know, he was happy. Our son had been angry from the time he was born. He was happy, content, cooperative. And yes, the eczema 
who was there, but it wasn't bothering him. He was started he started wearing shorts, which he always refused to do. Was sleeping at night. Uh, you know, we'd we bought bright red sheets for him because he, you know, just rip himself to shred, shreds at night. Mm. Just as he said, a few months later, the eczema actually left. Um, but the the significant thing was it never it never even occurred to us that there we could change personality <laughs> or mm. change. You know, um, we thought we were just going for something physical. Well, so at that point, I was completely smitten with homeopathy, and I read everything I could and, um, you know, bought the books I could find and joined a local study group. And then I stalled because there was nowhere to study in Canada. There were no schools at the time. Other people in the study group were all single with no children. And so they were free to move to England or go down to the States. And so, But even in the States at that time, you had to have some sort of medical uh, qualification in order to study homeopathy. And then you did homeopathy later. Um, so, and I had no interest in getting a medical qualification. I had no interest in being a naturopath, which is what a lot of people were doing. I knew I wanted to do homeopathy. So anyway, I put it on the shelf. I just figured, you know, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And and at the moment I have a, a young family and, you know, I have to focus on them. And uh, at the time I was working uh, part-time at a, a feminist women's health center. So I was fitting diaphragms and cervical caps and doing um, pregnancy counseling. And we also had a resource center there for women in the city where, where people would come and fill out forms in their doctors. It was back in the days when people could actually choose the doctors they went to. Um, I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in Canada, most Canadians don't have a GP. We have miles long waiting lists actually to see, to see, to, you know, to have a GP. But at the time people could, could actually choose, choose their GP and they'd come in again, pre-internet, you know, women would come in and fill out these forms and know who they were going to. And, and, um, and we did a lot of, yeah, um, post-hysterectomy counseling. And we had, there were birth collectives that were there. Uh, you know, we supported women who, seeing midwives and having home births, which was illegal in Canada at the time, both wow. both home births and, and midwives. So um, it was a pretty happening place. We had a government grant. And at one time, there were actually 14 of us working there. So, but I would just, you know, from the time I, I had this homeopathic experience, I would just refer all these women to, to Lou because I thought, yeah, there's nothing else for them, you know. I mean, if he can do this for my kid with his, his with his eczema, I'm sure he can help all these women with the problems that they have. And you know, that just became a real interest for for me. So fast forward ten years, we've moved across the country from British Columbia to Ontario, and um, settled. Promised the kids we wouldn't move again. <laughs> and out of the blue, my husband gets an invitation to apply for a job in London, and. You know, he he threw out the first three that arrived, and then when the fourth one came, he thought, "Well, I better I better actually take this seriously." I kind of, <laughs> you know, this sort of looks like my name is on this job. Sure enough, he got it, and um, we moved to to England. We lived there for about ten years, and it meant I could. Wow. Yeah, because at that point there still were no colleges in Canada. By the time we came back ten years later, there were. But anyway, so that was wonderful. I I mm-hmm. you know joined a study group right away, found a homeopath, and studied at a wonderful little college that doesn't exist anymore called Purton House School of Homeopathy, where we met in our principal's living room, group of eighteen. Wow, uh, it was fabulous. Awesome. And um, yeah, and we met every week. That was the other thing. It wasn't the sort of two or three day weekend. And we met every week, almost every week of the year. Mm. And then had to fit our clinical work and what have you in around that. But uh, but I felt like I got a really good 
grounding, you know, and that's what it was, though. It was a grounding. And, and when we graduated, our principal said, so now the real learning starts. Mm. Go and taste every kind of homeopathy you can and figure out what your own practice is going to be, you know. And so for some people, that was a very discouraging thing after four years of hard work and um, lots of money. And, and in my case, it involved quite a bit of traveling, um, but it was all worth it. So at that time in, in England, there was a, there was a spectrum of homeopathy, you know, at one end of the spectrum was what was called the practical school. And they, they didn't do a lot of the sort of deep psychological, classical prescribing. They were more into practical remedies that worked sometimes in combination with each other. Um, but more more about more allopathic in the sense that it was like these remedies are for the liver. You can take a combination of them to heal your liver, you know, this, you know, like, like that. Mm-hmm. Um and then at the other end of the spectrum were these stri- strictly classical people um, who had, and, and my school was somewhere in the middle, you know, we had a classical training, but we, which meant one remedy at a time. And we basically learned what I think of as a box of remedies, you know, um, of which was the way people pr- practiced at that time. There was the polycrest and those po- the, that box might be 10 remedies or 20 remedies or 50 remedies or 200 remedies, depending on the practitioner, you know, and people tended to sort of expand their box as the years went through, but basically people were being fit into a slot. And I saw that early on, even before I started studying homeopathy and it always bothered me. It was the one big question I had that was never answered in my four years was, you know, if we all are individuals, we're all snowflakes. Why is it that everybody's getting nature muriaticum at some time? You know, why are we using such a small number of remedies? At the moment, we have 7,200, 7,200, 7,500 remedies, I think, in the entire um, Materia Medica. So why would you settle for 200, you know? Mm. And, I, and I think part of it was at the time we didn't have the internet. You know, the internet for me has revolutionized homeopathy in so many ways. It's been a very good thing for homeopathy. With the internet, we were able to, to, to get databases that, that um, were searchable and expensive. But, you know, as, as Lou would always say, Lou Klein, my, the homeopath that we went to, um, he, he would always say, well, the people that were practicing at the time of James Tyler Kent, who was a f- um, one of the foremost American homeopaths around the turn of the last century, th- those those practitioners would spend a whole year's income on a repertory, which was a large book, um, wow. uh, a dictionary. So really, you know, you kind of have to have a perspective. We're, we're a unique audience, mm-hmm. small, Very unique cool. audience that are actually going to be purchasing these. So mm-hmm. I meant to say, too, I practiced in England a lot. I had a very busy practice from the get-go. And then we came back to Canada and I got off the plane and walked into a Nash North American Society of Homeopaths meeting where Lou was the keynote speaker. And I had already signed up for his postgraduate course at that point. I was burnt out. So I went for my box of remedies to, as my principal suggested, taste some other things. And what I found was I needed those other things to supplement what I was doing. So I started using tissue salts Mm. and combination remedies and herbal tinctures and incorporating those into my practice because my box was not big enough. Yeah, I did that and really burnt out after about four years. I'd move people from 
one remedy in the box to another remedy in the box. And then I'd add on with these other things. And it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I saw in the, that postgraduate training that Lou was doing the possibility of opening up the box to the, interior, the entire Materia Medica. Mm. Um, so I embarked on that process for, for another three years of, of postgraduate study. And it was very difficult because I was quite confident in what I was doing. And it was like, I had to go through a process of breaking down what I thought I knew and to open it up to new things and um, very different way of practicing. And it did require systems, you know, so, so when I'm teaching students now, what I say to them, you can operate out of a box of remedies that you're comfortable with. I know lots of people that do that still lots of homeopaths practice that way. For me, it was limiting. And it also meant that, that I would hear people say things like, oh, classical homeopathy doesn't treat that condition. You know, Mm -hmm. what nonsense homeopathy can treat anything. You just have to find the right remedy. So we came back to Canada in 1999. Since then, I've embarked on learning as many systems as I can to allow me to access all those remedies. And I have found I don't need combination remedies. I don't need tissue salt. I mean, they all have their place. But in my own practice, I'm always working on get that single remedy that's actually going to uh, heal my patient at, a, at, a, at the deepest level possible. So, you know, it's meant... Um, really getting a, a good handle on the periodic table, for instance, a very brilliant Dutch homeopath, Jan Scholten, around 25 years ago, like around the time that I had started studying, came up with the idea that it, the periodic table is the table of life. For him, as mm-hmm. you know, a trained as a scientist, um, the periodic table is, is the table of life. And he, he said to himself, well, if, if it's the table of life, why is it not something we use in homeopathy. So what he did was to actually take the periodic table and to map the known homeopathic remedies, the ones that are in the box, Nature Muriaticum, Cali Carbonicum, um, the mineral remedies that were known to map them and to look at their symptoms. Uh, And then once he had them all on the map, what he realized was the connections between them and was able to draw some conclusions about themes that went both vertically and horizontally across the periodic table. Mm. And then once he'd done that, he was able to start proving, which is the process by which we find out what's in a homeopathic remedy, the the, the gaps. So rhenium suddenly became part of the homeopathic materia medica, ruthenium, calcarium muriaticum, and and then combination. So calcarium, not just carbonicum or or calcarium sulfuricum, but calcarium muriaticum and Mm -hmm. calcarium nitricum. And this, he was able to figure out what the the meaning of the salts, the muriaticums, the nitricums, the Mm -hmm. what have you, that were then now added on to remedies that they hadn't been added on to before. And they had, what do you know, they had a whole new new meaning and they, Mm -hmm. they fit you know, cases um, in a different way and in a deeper way. Everything I look at, you know, any case I look at, I put it through different mental filters. And one of them for me is where is this person on the on the material on the on the periodic table? Mm-hmm. Where, what place in their lives are they at? You know, um, and what you know, which fit, <laughs> which um, stage on the periodic yes. table? Yeah. Anyway, then and then you know, as people got a handle on that. He then explored a whole row on the periodic table that nobody knew anything about, the lanthanides, and discovered that this unknown hidden part of the periodic table 
was just what, what we needed for autoimmune diseases and children with the kind of things that homeopaths see today, you know, uh, lots and lots of people. We see a lot of people with autoimmune diseases. Mm. We see uh, children who are on the autism spec with autism spectrum disorder with an alphabet of AD, ADD, ADHD, mm. uh, you know, various, various so-called behavioral disorders. And those are places where the lanthanides are absolutely brilliant. You know, and they are made. They are used in life to, to as components of computers, um, colors in a television screen. I mean, the things that we use that are unique to to our time. So it's totally appropriate that they would be the right remedies for conditions that are mm. are fairly new in history. Yeah, we can um, almost call them men. So, sorry, we can almost call them man-made diseases. Yeah, some of them have to do with just the way we live our lives. Mm. You know, this, this particular where we are in. In history, and and you know, I I really believe that that there is an evolutionary process with remedies, and that 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 they need to be adapt, they need to adapt to the time and the and the diseases that people are presenting. Mm. So that would be one that I use. Um, I also draw extensively on on my studies with Lou, who is just a brilliant homeopath and and whose work you know if you, if you haven't studied with him directly a lot of the information he, he is trying to write as much as he can now mm. um, he's not practicing at the moment and he's um you know working on his books but um can i do a quick has- little shout out as well to his uh, online learning platform zomeo which i've used as well z-h-o-m-e-o and that's for yes. professional yeah. homeopaths to get development but there as I mean you I haven't been able to really even scratch the surface because there's so much material in there for you to study it's really opened my mind to a lot of different um, topics yeah 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 Zomio is fantastic and, and it's he's not doing the HMC classic master clinician course anymore mm. he is just focusing on Zomio and he's not actually doing present he's not there's access to all his old or all the not his mm. old, but his videos that he produced. Yeah. But now he's actually turned it over to people that have studied with him to um, and to colleagues to present their their own material. Mm-hmm. Um, and and a lot of them are people that don't present anywhere else. So they're yeah, just yeah, absolutely. It's a brilliant resource for everybody that any 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 homeopaths that are listening. Yeah. If you're not uh, subscribing to Zomeo, I really recommend. Yeah. You know, if you want to expand your own materia medica, it's a very good way of doing it. Absolutely. So what I'm sharing with you is basically how I work by by introducing you to all these different things. Mm-hmm. So back to Jan Schulten. So he went from the lanthanides to then going. Well, hang on a minute. I mean, there's this whole untapped world of plants, um, and really, we have. There's not up until Jan. There was very little good information about plants. Mm-hmm. So he took the periodic table and then came up with another structure, which is far more complex. So I always say to people, you have to get a handle on the periodic table first before you move on to the plants, because he's added new categories. And uh, and of course, the plants are so complicated. And, and part of what makes them so complicated is there are different classification systems. Mm. They change all the time, you know. <laughs> so... So um, another person that I study with who came out with her work around the same time is, again, a brilliant um, biologist, homeopath, uh, uh, botanist homeopath um, from Israel, Mikhail Yakir. And she also has a table of plants, but it's completely different from Jan's. And it's based on a different classification system. Oh, my gosh. So uh, usually I recommend to people that they get their head around one system first. Mm. And then, you know, if they want to personally i use both of them i love them both um and I, and they have different functions for me um so 
so yeah, so I use the periodic table. I use those two. What, what are the other? The other big tool that I use is colors. I've got that. I've yeah. got that. I've um, never used it, but I've got it in the clinic. It's called the Colors in Homeopathy, and it was um, the story of it is is Ulrich Welch, who was um, a German homeopath. His his homeopath passed away, and Ulrich discovered that he had spent thirty five years of his practice ca- collecting his patients' favorite colors mm-hmm. and their handwriting style, mm. and he did his prescribing partly on the basis of that information. Because what he started to find was that people that needed certain remedies would choose certain colors mm. and that their handwriting bore a similar style to, to mm-hmm. each other. So when I heard about it, I was fascinated. I actually heard about it while I was reading Jan Scholten's book because I noticed this cryptic 14A, 17C, what have oh. you, on the cases. And I was thinking, well, what is that? And, and sure enough, you know, he explains it's this color system. So it's, it's a really beautiful thing. Because what anyway, what Ulrich did was was to take his his teacher and his homeopath's information and then put it in an accessible form so that other people could use it. And again, with the beauty of the internet, he or somebody else from his practice goes online every week and does corrections to the list of colors. So there's, I don't know, probably a thousand remedies that are that are mapped out on the colors now at this point but it's an updating something that gets updated regularly um so it's a very good system and there's a bunch of us around the world who are using it and feeding information into him uh, from our own practices so somebody somebody does really well on can i am you know we we feed that that case into him and say and then he has a system of for, for people that are familiar with a homeopathic repertory there's there's a way of classifying symptoms, um, uh, you know, in different categories. So for instance, uh, a black type symptom, what we call a black type symptom is one where um, a number of homeopaths have reported to Ulrich, oh, you know, so so my one patient, there may be 10 other homeopaths who said, oh, uh, yes, I've seen that that color coming up um, in with respect to that remedy. And mm. so that becomes a black type symptom because a lot of people have had that experience. If it's just one person, he'll put it in in uh, plain type and then goes back and checks with the person to see whether their patient was continuing to do well months mm. later, or if he received that same information from other people, then it might go up to another category. So anyway, I just mentioned, and I use the handwriting, I collect the handwriting, but I haven't found it as useful a system. So it's mm. not, not for me. Quick question for me, Pat, do you yeah. happen to know if that, cause I have that book, but I haven't used it uh, as I would have liked to, mm-hmm. you know, it's just sitting there on the shelf really. Is there a good online course that explains how to, how do you really properly use that? Well, if you're a Zomeo member, you can go in and find, oh, I've awesome. actually done one and, uh, and Marcus Quintosh, who actually works with Ulrich Welt. And he is the guy who usually checks them. Mm-hmm. He has also done one. So uh, I think actually, I think Marcus did too. And I did too. So if you just, go through the archives you'll find them okay Um, okay but uh so every homeopath finds their own way of doing things and i do find that people are as i said about england they are on a spectrum you know and some people are more rigid and other people are more loose so when you go to see a homeopath and i'm talking about people that have you know done the training and graduated from college and usually done other training and 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 we're real I mean, most of the homeopaths I know are bibliophiles. You know, yeah. we, as soon as the new books are out, we collect them, <laughs> yep. new information. Um, and we also attend seminars and we attend, right now it's webinars. And we've had so many webinars. That we've, I mean, it's been the heyday of homeopathy for me because they're, well, A, we can see people on Zoom, which is just the most brilliant thing. I have, 
I was doing most of my practice on Zoom already, but when COVID hit, it meant I had to do it 100% of the time, which is what I wanted to do anyway, and I'm not going back. So, mm-hmm. um, it allowed that, which means people all around the world have access to all kinds of homeopaths that they couldn't have before. Mm-hmm. People all around the world that don't live somewhere where a homeopath lives that, you know, are able to access somebody. And, and you know, we can go online and look at people's websites and choose somebody that resonates with us as as a practitioner, which is brilliant. But also, I've gone to conferences that I couldn't have gone to, you know, because of the cost, um, you know, in different parts of the world. I go to webinars all over the world. It's just the most wonderful thing. So I, I've learned so much in the last couple of years. It's been a really wonderful time in that respect. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you know, COVID has been so hard for so many people, but I, I think that there are certain people who found it a, a real boon. in disguise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of, say, a registered homeopath, there there is no standard way of practicing, you know, everybody it's so it's very individual. um, And everybody uses what works for them. India is the heart of homeopathy. And if they have 1000s of colleges, hundreds of 1000s of practitioners, and they, and they normally, but again, it, it varies a lot, but a lot of them are very, they train as doctors, they're very allopathic in their thinking, you know, you have this condition, you know, you use these remedies, they tend to work from a very small box, but they know that box back and forth, like mm. backwards and forwards, like mm. nobody else I know. They learn by rote, mm. so they can they memorize the remedies, you know. Um, so it's it's a well-utilized box. And I would say that's tr- that's the majority of the Indian homeopaths. And then within that community, though, you've got different teachers who do things different ways. I mean, there's, there's one fellow that some of your moms may be familiar with, Banerjee, um, who has a protocol for everything. You've got breast cancer, right? You know, here are the remedies and here's how you take them. You know, there's no individualization. It's just, it's just you know, straight up, these are the remedies for these conditions. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work, you know? And the times it doesn't work are, you know, are when you've got a remedy that's just completely has no relationship to that person yeah, at all. Yeah. But, you know, it, it has a, a, and it's a very popular method for a lot of home prescribers to use mm-hmm. because it is so black and white, cut and dried. Mm-hmm. And then on the other end of the spectrum in India, you have people like uh, Rajan Sankaran, who uh, taught something which was initially called the sensation method, and it's kind of morphed into other names and other things. But the idea was that you basically took one theme that a person would mention, um, you know, I, uh, just just an example. They might say they feel stuck. Or- yeah, I, yeah, exactly. Or yeah. yeah, I'm stuck in my life or mm. I have a headache that's killing me. And they would just go through that headache and, until basically they got into a place where the person was saying stuff that didn't make any sense. Mm. But what it was doing was leading to the remedy mm. to a place where the person, if it's done very well, the person will actually describe the remedy that they need, um, mm. which is kind of an amazing process, but very few people do it well. And um, I having seen it, seen it not done well, lots of times, yeah. I, I only use it when it's really appropriate in my own practice. And there's um, definitely and it, parts yeah. of that you could use. Hey, so it, if right. you're not, not necessarily exactly. using that prescribing style by itself, there's exactly. certainly parts you could pull out, pull out of it. And that's yeah. what I do as well, just little part. Yeah, exactly. But that's very, you know, that couldn't be more different than the way most Indian mm. homeopathic doctors who are trained as doctors, you know, they don't go through medical school um, to practice homeopathy in India. Um, and they go through homeopathic medical school, whereas you know, other doctors will be trained in Ayurvedic medicine. Mm. They will also train as doctors, but they are using a traditional ancient Indian medicine. Um, 
and then others others will be in an allopathic stream where they they train that way. So, yeah, so that's a very different situation than the West, um, where in fact what we call lay homeopathy or professional homeopathy only came into existence in the 1970s. And and part of what facilitated that was that there was a plane crash. At that point, homeopathy was only practiced by a small number of doctors, MDs in England. And a whole group of them went off to a conference in Belgium and they had a plane crash. Many of them died. And as a result, it just kind of decimated the professional homeopathic community. And in the in the wings were two different groups of so-called lay people, you know, non-medically trained people who were studying with a man called John DeMonte and Thomas Mom. And they had been studying with them for a few years. And suddenly it was their time to practice, you know, and one of them founded a, the first homeopathic college in, in London for, for people that weren't medical. The Society of Homeopaths was formed at that time. Uh, and And suddenly... You know, the world was open to homeopaths who were not medical doctors, mm. and that changed everything. You know, um, and and you know that spread all around the world. Now we, there are homeopaths who are not medical doctors all over the world, um, and so it's also spread homeopathy, and it's allowed homeopathy to grow in a different way. Mm. And I think um, it's quite a wonderful thing. So. Um, Absolutely. Um, Pat, I have a bit of an interesting question for you. So yeah. do you think that it's important to match the prescribing style of the practitioner up to the client for yeah, our listeners yeah. listening to this? Is it important for them to ask their potential new practitioner what sort of prescribing styles they use before they go to that person? I think it's a perfectly legitimate question. I get that question usually from people who've been to homeopaths before. Mm. Um most people come in cold. They don't know what they're, they yeah, don't exactly you know. And people that have seen other, other homeopaths. And I have a lot of people that have seen other homeopaths before they'll come in and they'll say, what are you asking me about colors? You know, <sighs> my, my homeopaths didn't ask me anything about colors. Why is that important? You know, or, or I'll prescribe a remedy they've never heard of. And, they, and they're like, what, well, what's that remedy all about? You know, and, and mm-hmm. why I don't you know <laughs> this, it's not what they're expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, so we talk through it and, and, you know, I mean, if it really gets to a place where uh, they're not comfortable with it, then I'm very happy to refer them to somebody else who's more along the style of homeopath that they um, that they're used to. Hmm. But you know, there's um, so what I was going to say. There's a spectrum. So, you know, on the one hand, you have people who are dowsing for remedies, mm-hmm. you know, um, and are choosing them that way, or using an electronic machine that's going to tell them what remedies the person needs, and they may be given as many as fifteen remedies a day to mm-hmm. take. You know, so you know that's one end of the spectrum, and and then there's another end of the spectrum which is very rigid about classical homeopathy and you know you give one pill and that's it for seven weeks or mm-hmm. you know um and you're not to touch, touch the remedy at any other time and and um you know i mean that's a very different style mm-hmm. um and then all kinds of people in between and people have their favorite teachers you know so for many of the homeopaths in the west it's the eastern the teachers from india that they like um Rajan Sankran, who I mentioned, Divya Shabra, um, the Joshis, uh, these are all big teachers in from India who come to the West. And and there, and then there are other people who st- who study with, as I met people I've mentioned, Mikhail Yakir, Jan Shulton, um, and and then various other kind of not not as well-known homeopaths, but all of whom teach and 
uh, you know, are known to the homeopathic community, all of whom practice very differently. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got, yeah, their own style, their, their own combination of things that works for them and that, that they feel an affinity to. I got into real hot water at one point with a, a group of homeopaths online that was prescribing for children with autism. And I was really, and, and you know, moms were writing in, right? And and this mom had written in that she had been to two different homeopaths and one had, one had prescribed pills as opposed to liquids. Mm-hmm. And she understood from the, some of the people in this group that it was absolutely verboten to give a, a pill. Mm-hmm. It had to be a liquid. And the only way to prescribe for children with <laughs> autism was, and should she, and she was asking the group, what should I do? Should I like not go back to this homeopath? And I, and I stick, stuck my neck out and said, absolutely. If you felt comfortable with that homeopath, of course, go back to that homeopath. Mm. It's just a different way of prescribing. And I actually, it was huge. It was it just became a huge deal, you know, that I had wow. dared question one of these demigods on the mm. site who had said only liquid prescriptions. So, you know, there are people like that, that have, mm. you do it this way and, and, you know, how, or they have very complicated ways of liquid prescribing. You give it at 10 o'clock in the morning and you have 10 glasses lined up and you take yeah. a teaspoon one and then you take, you know, and, and I, poor patients. I mean, and then there's other people who have really long lists about all the, you can't eat peppermint and you can't eat, um, uh, you know, you, you can't you can't drink coffee and you can't use Tiger Bomb. You know, they can't, those injunctions came from some a long piece by Hahnemann in which he also talked about garlic and spiced chocolate, and yeah. all kinds of things that nobody talked about that were also part of the list and were equally important with too. Yeah. Um, and and in reality, we've you know we've just seen from experience. None of that matters. I mean, my pers- personal perspective is none of that stuff matters, and all it does is it puts off patients. Exactly, I found exactly you know, the same. There's homeopaths mm-hmm. that won't treat people who are on. Yeah, and and you know there there are homeopaths that won't treat people who are on allopathic medication. Mm. They will, will not treat people who've had radiation and chemotherapy for cancer. Mm, there are people crazy. that you know. So everybody has their rules, you know, mm. and. Personally, I think the less rules, the better, you know, yeah. homeopathy is a very flexible, but on the other hand, there are patients who are more comfortable with a, a very strict prescriber agree. Has, lots of, has lots of rules, you know, yeah. and prescribes in a way that's comfortable to them. So, uh, yeah, I, I do think there is a certain matching of the style of the homeopath and the style of the of of the patient, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have sometimes seen people who've been to six homeopaths before they've come to me, just because they want to find. And a lot of us actually offer a free session. I mean, I offer a half hour free session, and I know a lot of my colleagues do that, or or ten minute, fifteen. At least you can meet the homeopath be put, before you put out all that money, mm-hmm. and have a sense of whether you like their personality, and whether they feel like somebody you can trust your life to. You know, which is mm-hmm. what you're doing. You know, you it's very private information that you're sharing with your homeopath mm-hmm. and whether you feel that that's a person you you can you know entrust that information with. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I guess the moral of the story here is that all of us homeopaths prescribe very differently. And at the yeah. end of the day, you need to find somebody that you have good rapport with. When you're speaking with that person, your energy just, you know, just Absolutely. smashes together and you feel comfortable with that person and you feel you can share with them things that you might not have shared with anyone else so they can really get to the core of, of how to heal you. So don't let the prescribing style of the practitioner put you off. <laughs> and uh, yeah, just um, find somebody that you really resonate with. Pats, how can our listeners get hold of you? 
Where can they find you? Oh, um, my website is patdeacon, D-E-A-C-O-N.com. And just for a little bit of fun here at the end, what are your top three favorite homeopathic remedies and why? Good question. I have to say number one would be gelsemium. Mm. Um, Gelsemium um, is a remedy that some of you will know is one of the top influenza remedies. Um, it's a remedy that's been used a lot in COVID. It, it, it adapts itself to, to so many situations that I think people run into acutely. You know, the person who who is so scared to go to the doctor or the dentist that their their knees turn to rubber and they can't mm. stand anymore. That's that's gelsemium, you know, mm. or that can't get out of the bathroom, you know, because they keep having diarrhea or feeling like they're going to have diarrhea mm. um, or they just have to pee constantly, you know, before they, before they go and see the doctor or perform somewhere, or, uh, you know, uh, it's a big remedy for childbirth. It's a remedy for women that it's, it, it, it's in the rubric fear, fear of an ordeal. Mm. So for, for fear of childbirth, you know, it's the unknown and terrifies a lot of women and their cervixes will close right up and um, they won't, open to let mm. the baby out. So gelsemium is just a wonderful remedy for opening the cervix um, mm. and, and calming down the woman, you know, and often during, during the birth process, during labor, a woman will say, I just don't, I can't do it anymore, you know, mm. and, and will um, say, I just, I just want to stop it. I want to go back. I don't, I don't mm. want to have this baby. And, you know, um, and gelsemium is like magic in, in a moment like that. Uh, so Yeah. It's, you know, there's so many, the, the flu thing is very big, but there's also all the, these other, and related to flu, I should say too. It's also a remedy I've used for people who've been sick with flu-like, who, you know, post-viral mm. conditions where they hadn't had, home, they didn't know anything about homeopathy when they were originally sick. And they, you know, we sometimes have to go back to gelsemium as the remedy that they needed for the virus that they had in the first place. And mm. they may have been sick for 20 years, you know, um, mm. and with chronic fatigue syndrome and, and gelsemium is, is, is there as a remedy. So that would be my number one. Well, I mean, what would we do without Arnica? You know, um, <clears throat> I, I'm sure that's on most people's list. Yeah, list of yeah. top three remedies, and again, it's a remedy that's used for so many conditions. You know, it's it's uh, you can take arnica as a jet lag remedy. You can take arnica for the trauma of 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 um, of, of witnessing an accident. Um, mm. You know, the the again, one of those remedies that's useful sometimes years later. Somebody that had an accident fifteen years ago and they still dream about it. The arnica will stop that dream cycle. You know, and at the moment we're um, using arnica a lot for blood clots. Ah, okay. Okay. So a new situation. Yeah, yeah. 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 And it will stop bleeding. I mean, I've I've been seeing a lot of people with um nosebleeds kind of mm. out of the blue. I haven't had nosebleeds for years. Mm. Yeah. Uh, either after um, you know, after they've had COVID or whatever that um suddenly this comes up as a related to the blood clots, actually. Yeah. That the opposite, we can't stop bleeding. Mm-hmm. Arnica's the remedy, you know, and it's um yeah. Mm. Uh, and lucky number three. Oh boy, Budlia. <laughs> oh yes, somebody talking about Budlia. Tell us about Budlia. Budlia, I love it. Yeah. Okay. The Budlia is a new remedy, a new newly proven remedy, and it was mm. proven again. Provings are a whole other topic, but there are many ways in which remedies are proven, and and it is part of a group of remedies that uh, a group of people in England um, have proved through meditation. And it, it tends to be used a lot by that community of people and not by others. Um, I use it a lot. It's uh, made from the butterfly bush. Yes, exactly. 
the Buddleia. I'm sure that grows in Australia. It does. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, we should, when we moved from it from BC to Ontario, uh, we had we had tried to to grow one, and you know, it didn't survive mm-hmm. the winter. It was just a bit of an odd plant yeah. that people really didn't know there. But but in, yeah, in the UK, when we lived in the UK and when we lived in BC. We always had Buddleia bushes and yeah, so I would say Buddleia, it's a trauma remedy. It's a really brilliant remedy mm-hmm. for trauma and grief. And um, and interestingly, the the butterflies, one of the big indications for butterflies are children who've been abused. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this whole piece of, again, of trauma uh, that's, you know, related to Buddleia. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I just, I think it's one of the most brilliant grief remedies and is really, really underused. Mm, definitely. Uh-huh. And it has this uh, ability to heal the planet. It's a remedy I give to a lot of my clients. And I say to them, when you go walking in the bush, go throw some remedies in the streams just to help heal mm-hmm. the planet. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. so lovely to speak with you today, Pat. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. I really appreciate it. And um, I will chat again very soon. Okay. All right, <laughs> Eugenie. Have a good rest of the day, everybody. And um, thank you for asking me to be here. Thanks so much.